Hello, and welcome to the Better Relationship Podcast. I'm your host, Dolphin Casper, and I'll be exploring interesting, exciting conversations with people who have stories, solutions, and expertise to help you in your journey towards richer and more meaningful relationships in your life. Rochelle, welcome to the Better Relationship Podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Um, I know you from a conference that happened earlier this year, the Depth Summit uh, that Relationflix put on. And I I was really taken by your calm, grounded presence and also that there was so much history and and mythology and storytelling in how you gave your talk. And I assume that that's woven into you know, your facilitation and your coaching as well. Uh, so excited to have you on the program and maybe just to start, maybe share with us a little bit about what it is that has you doing this work in the world. And, and when people come to you, what is it that you find they're mostly coming with and in need of support with? Um, well, first of all, thanks for the invitation to spend time with you. So... Uh, yeah, what compelled me to get into this work was uh, I, I've i just been interested in relationships from a very young age. And in particular, I would I would describe it as I didn't come to it in the, in the sense of, oh, I wonder how relationships work. It was more like, why are we so screwed up? That was the way I came to it. And I remember my parents uh, ordering National Geographic magazines. And I used to look at those when I was a small kid, looking through the pictures and seeing the different ways that people live. So I've, I've always had that interest. Why are we so different? What is it that makes relationships work? And I mean, all kinds of relationships, you know, whether it's with humans or with, if it's with land, if it's with trees, if it's with the wild, looking at the wide range of relationships. And so I've just never stopped having that curiosity. And I was very blessed to meet Marshall Rosenberg in the year 2000. And when I met him, I was at that time married. I had two children. And, you know, family life is is grueling, especially when we have the saying, it takes a village to raise a child and there ain't no village. You know, there are many attempts at it. I, you know, have always been interested in community life, but it doesn't quite match up with what I'm imagining at some point historically, we did experience some uh, village life. And and I don't want to have rose-colored glasses when I talk about that, because that doesn't mean there weren't problems. It just means that the problems were different in nature, and it means that our ability to really uh, connect with each other and have a shared understanding, which to me is crucial for people who are going to uh, thrive in relationships. And and so that's that's where my curiosity comes from, um, or my the, the work that I do. And I've always been interested in stories, mythology, poetry, and so I just kind of tie it all together into this uh package. And you, your second question was, what is it that uh, people come? Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, they usually come and say, oh, we're not communicating very well. You know, we have a problem with our communication. And it's true, people do have problems with their communication, but I think it's much deeper than that. I think people are often uh, incorrect about 
their own diagnosis of what's going on in their relationships. So I don't know if you want to delve more into that, but that's answering yeah, your question. We're going to yeah. get into that for sure. Yeah, they usually show up. If they're a couple, they show up and, the, you know, it's what they want is, can you fix my partner? Yeah. We're here together, but fix my partner, please. Right. The problem is over there. Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. That's a much, much more convenient <laughs> story yeah. anyway. So you, you mentioned something there that I wanted to, to kind of get into, which is, you know, maybe an over-romanticizing of the past, you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, well, when there was village, when there was community, it was just this utopia of, of beauty and connection and we were on the land and everyone got along and it was just, you know, picturesque, wondrous, human, human flourishing. Now, I do believe we face some really significant and, and unique challenges in, in modern human life. Um, and I also know we can't go back you know, we can't put the genie back in the bottle, but I think we can recover principles of living that that deeply work and that are kind of that our our evolutionary and kind of biological past weaves, you know, innately together with. So, could you say a little bit about you know letting go of this idea of recapturing the past, but but taking what's of value from it so that we can move forward? Is sure. Um... And by moving forward, I'm assuming you mean getting better, which I'm not. I'm yeah. not much of an optimist, but no. Okay, well, we can get into that no. too. I, th- I think what I what I mean <laughs> by moving forward is, I'm a really huge fan. This is something that I kind of frame and 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 work with in my own work, which is, if we're not working with the raw material of the present moment, we can't really build authentically forward. And so, mm. anything that we project onto the present that's a that's a kind of utopia or or you know, in, includes our biases and blind spots, we're not really working with the present moment. We're working with our preferences and aversions towards it. So you know, if, if we are looking at how do we come into a rightful relationship with, with present moment happenings and move towards what's possible for us as human beings, what does that look like? And, and you can you know, bring in some of, because I love, I love having awareness and knowledge of history and, and ecology, because if we don't, if we don't reference those pieces, I think we're being quite naive in, in how we approach the present. Yeah. So I have a different kind of question, but I appreciate that question of how do we move forward? It's typically what people want to know. How do we fix? Well, I like to ask the question, how did this happen to begin with? And what are we looking at? To me, this is a very good thing. I mean, you, you know, we we take our vehicles to the mechanic and they need to know how the thing works in order <laughs> to be able to figure out how it's going to be able to spin its wheels and move forward and then and, and to figure out how it's not working right like to, yeah, to know how yeah. it works allows so, you to diagnose what's not working yeah so so what what are we looking at what is happening what has happened and it's true we can't go back you you can't go back to anything because the back that we're thinking about no longer exists. However, there are ways to look back in order to see where we are now. So the idea of uh, relationships, uh, you know, having thrived back in the past, I don't believe that that was ever the case, but I can tell you one thing that did thrive and that was the land. That was 
you know, all of the uh, creatures that uh, are, are going extinct and or have gone extinct by way of, you know, not everyone in the world, but in the modern way of looking at things, what we've done. So in our attempt, or it, it's actually been very successful, I would say, progress is very successful. And yet it's like a huge, huge consequence that not only impacts our environment, but impacts the relational environment, meaning how do people speak to each other? So if you come from a history of exploitation and of mining, you know, mining the earth and, ex you know, exploiting, taking what you need, having landfills, don't be surprised when this happens interpersonally. It's the same kind of thing. And you're not meeting my needs. Oh, well, geez, since when am I the the vehicle for your needs to be met because uh, that's a way that people often come to relationships and it didn't work well why didn't it work well because I didn't get what I wanted it's very often how it is now there are many relationships that you know um and for good reason um and there are many that probably could continue if people change their understanding of what the relationship is there for anyway. So as long as we're trying to get our needs met and we live in a corner of the world where we're instantly gratified with pretty much anything, then we can see that there's probably a problem, problem not with our communication, but with our thinking uh, and yeah, our expectations. I hear you talking about sort of a global paradigm of, of like what are we up to here, and and you know there's a concept I'm sure you're aware of the uh, tragedy of the commons when there you know there's a finite resource and a community of people accessing the resource but no coordination of how do we access the resource and for what, and when that lack of kind of governance uh, if you want to call it that, when the lack of governance is there then there's always those that can, will take more than they need. And and some will get much less than they need, and and in a way, you know, this uh, transactional kind of extraction-based paradigm is is not thinking about the downstream consequences of the way that we operate. And and you know, like I loved how you extended that to the relational world, which of course, like if you have a f a fundamental paradigm of of what you're up to in life, it's going to leak into all the domains of life. So. If you want to say more about that, I'd love to hear it. But what do we do about that? We, we, for those of us that grew up in a kind of modern Western culture, um, that's there in the ether. It's like it, it's there in our, in our, in our cells. This, this sense that we're, we, a, we can just walk down to the store and get anything we need anytime we want. Like that's an interesting thing that does something to the human condition. And, and, and in that, we don't need each other in the way that we used to. And what do we do when, when that? along with a kind of, you know, extraction-based transactional paradigm of culture is what we grew up in. How do we start to reconnect with something that's more ecological and relational? Okay, well, a, a great question. I'm, I'm not the answer person, but I'm going to try anyway. I'll, I will talk about it, okay? <laughs> so, because what do we do is, you know, I don't know what we do, but I have some thoughts about what could be done. And it's not 
in order to achieve this, you know, oh, it's all good now, it's all fixed. I, I don't think we're going to get there. I think too much has already occurred. There's a, there's a lot of destruction, and it's going to be hard for people to to change their ways. But if people are interested in changing their ways, here's here's one. Let, let's try this uh, as a as a recipe. People long for connection, don't they? They they really long for connection. They long for connection with a an intimate partner, with their children, their family, their community, the nature. They long for the connection. But I've been wondering now for quite a while. Um, could it be that people are have become actually uh, connection adverse because we're so steeped in disconnection? We're so steeped in it. I mean, you can just start from the you know when you took your first breath. So. You know, uh, hospitalized births, hospitalized deaths, uh, every all the interventions that occur that are supposedly uh, to increase the quality of life or the possibility of survival. All of these things are, most of them by nature, hugely disconnecting. You know, a crib, for instance. I mean, I've, I've asked people this in, in workshops, in longer workshops. What do you think the crib did to you? Did you, were you, did you spend time there? You know, Fisher Price, <laughs> or whoever the company is, they created this thing. You know, this is a very recent invention. And it's all done to make uh, life easier. For who? Who's life easier for now that there's a crib in another room that would have never existed? I mean, it, you would never have survived if that were the case. Uh, human beings wouldn't have survived is what I mean by that. So that very early separation, if you're in your crib and you're crying and no one's coming because this is sleep training time, what's happening to you? And it's, it's becoming so embedded in who you are. So if you're longing for skin-to-skin -skin contact and, you know, the caregivers believe that, well, you've been fed, it's not time, it's time to sleep. So this is training. The training for what? It's training for a kind of insanity. And the separation is in there. It's no wonder that in therapy, people you know, will be asked the question. So let's get to your family of origin now. And we get to the family of origin to find out what? Well, your what's your earliest memory of your mom and your dad? And, and that's where you've got some trauma, right? But there's also the trauma before then that registers somatically, and it's not anything that's in your uh, accessible memory. But those first few months of life, I think it's a very big deal. Uh, one of my favorite books, probably my all-time favorite book, is called um, The Continuum Concept by Jean Leadloff. And it's 
a, a woman's time in the uh, Amazon rainforest living with the Yaquana tribe. Now, this was a few decades ago, and Jean Leadloff is, is no longer living, but her book became a classic and widely shared. It's still very popular. It's a grassroots, like how to, how to parent your kids. And the thing that she noted was that children were never put down. They were they were in arms. So she calls it the in arm phase where children are held and you don't have the kind of disconnection or bad behavior or alienation um, or attitudes that you see so commonly in modern society. Because the kids were just naturally, you know, going with the flow. And they were embedded in the village life, which had usefulness uh, in everything. So when it comes time to eat your food and it's on your plate, where did it come from? Did you have anything to do with it other than making the purchase? You know, it goes through so many hands. So without that direct contact, it's easy to forget and not only is it easy to forget, it's e very easy to become increasingly insistent and entitled. Well, I had it yesterday. Why am I not having it today? So, you know, you, you can just imagine what it was like to have all these um, people living together, thriving. And I mean, it wouldn't be a life that would be easy for anybody who's used to mod modern times, I mean, hey, where's my latte? <laughs> Which I happen to personally enjoy, <laughs> okay? But I would trade it in. Mm, I would absolutely trade it in. It's just too late for me now. I I'm too used to things. <laughs> do, do, you mean that, do you mean that literally or are you just I, sort I mean, of speaking no, to I the... mean that literally. I mean it literally, probably. Yeah, at my age, you know, <laughs> I don't know, how would I do... You know, living in an environment that requires me to have direct contact. I'm used to, you know, the conditioned life, air conditioning, air, you know, whatever it is, the the, the creature comforts, I'm so accustomed to them. But this doesn't mean my life is fantastic. I mean, I could tell you all the the ways that in which it is. So I'm, I'm not wanting to complain about it, but I am saying that a lot of it is, is just underwritten by the separation. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I, what I think is so important to do when I am working with people is to get them to think about the ways in which they're separated and how a lot of it, they actually want it. I'm going to my room. Leave me alone. There you go. There's an example, now, which is not to say that privacy and, and time alone isn't a good thing. It is. But uh, it, it's, it has a different tone to it. If you, if you could imagine yourself being a Kalahari Bushman and, and you were off on a walkabout, it's a very different thing than I'm off to my room because I live in a sick society and no one's talking about it and... And I'm not getting what I want. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm such a huge proponent of of 
consciously and willingly leaning into discomforts of different kinds on a regular basis. I think comfort without the right kind of context becomes a kind of invisible addiction that that I think most people aren't registering as as a real um, sort of limiting factor in their life. Um, you know, you said earlier people might actually be, I don't know if you said might, I think you said are averse to connection. And I just wanted to kind of frame that idea and, and dig into it a little bit more deeply because I think anyone that is paying attention at all knows how deeply we long for meaningful, authentic connection. And in spite of all the ways we can distract ourselves from that, that that ache, I think it's inherent in us, this ache to be close in a meaningful way to one another um, isn't going anywhere. And yet, authentic connection comes with consequences. Like there are significant downstream consequences to being in real, open-hearted, authentic relationship with other human beings. And even more strikingly so if we've been living in a disconnected, kind of dissociated way of being. Because opening from that place to then open to authentic connection means everything that dissociation has done for me is now being taken away. And that is significant on the level of how how relationship shows up for us in terms of how we experience it and how painful it can be. So, you know, I'd love to dig a bit more into your sense or your take on like, well, how do we become averse to this thing we so deeply long for and want? And and is there a way to reconcile that that gap? Well, I, I do think it has to do with uh, maybe making an inventory of the separations and having a good, hard look at that. And in what ways have some of these separations that I've not even acknowledged, not even considered before, how are they impacting me right now? And here I am, a deeply wounded person hanging on to their grievance teddy bear and with someone who's doing the same thing. And of course, we have our own particular strategies of how we are with these, uh, are with our woundedness and with the woundedness of another person. But to be able to really be willing to tell the truth, and the truth is not always available to us either, because it's somatically held, it's culturally held, it's also uh, culturally hidden in a way, because you know, would you be ready to do the trade-in that would be required for us to begin living in a really sane way that is connected with what the earth can tolerate? Because we we're beyond that point, I believe, anyway, it, it appears to me. I mean, whether it's about climate change, I would, it, it's, it's really more the fact that if you have been alive long enough, you can see how change registers and you can see how a place changes. You can see how what used to be a, a town is now a village, how what used to be acres of uh, land and maybe agricultural land is now a suburb. I mean, it happens right in front of us. So while that's continuing, we're sitting around the tables trying to figure out how we're going to manage this thing. And bring me another latte, please. Oh, and I would like to order this and off of, uh, you know, skip the dishes, or whatever it is. So the, 
the insanity machinery keeps on going. So then if you're willing to recognize that all of this is happening, and what can you do to uh, restore some sanity in your own corner, uh, you know, in your own personal relationships, in the place you live, in the neighborhood you live, to start to, I think, live smaller, um, but at the same time, live deeper and more richly. But you have to see the price tag on things. Because when we go to the store and we see a price tag, that it doesn't tell us really what the cost of that is. It doesn't tell you who were the farmers, where was the mining done, uh, did any indigenous people lose their land as a result? Um, yeah, what's the cost of your phone? I mean, oh boy, if if you could really take that in, probably we would just go forget it. I would, I would vote for that myself. Like, let's just stop with the phones. And already, because of what it's doing to people, relationships, you're texting while you're over for dinner. What am I not here? <laughs> you know. So the desire to be present is is eclipsed by an addictive desire for connection that cannot be met by scrolling. Yeah, of course. So I hear you pointing to what I would frame as sort of voluntary blindness, where where we actually know a whole bunch about the cost of things and we sort of live our lives leaving it way in the background where it's just a whisper if we can hear it at all. Um, because it's really inconvenient. If I was really going to take take stock of, of those truths I know, that would be wildly inconvenient to my current state of, of life and, and, and my current kind of comfort zone, which, which is really, it's not the only thing at play, but I think we, under, we underplay the role our, our attachment and addiction to comfort plays in our decision-making. So, you know, all of that to say someone might be listening, wanting to know more about that historical piece for themselves, wanting to show up in a way that that more honors what matters most and simultaneously cultivates a future that has more connection in it and more meaning in it. You talked about not really being someone who like fixes. You're not you're not there to fix a problem. So what is it? Like how do we approach it? And you know, I'll leave it there. There's some pieces that I think I'll weave in as we go, but I would love to hear from you for those people on, on a more practical level, like how do we start to work with these historical pieces in us? And and what's the difference between just spinning our wheels or you know endlessly beating pillows uh, to meaningfully getting to the incomplete pieces of our past? Hmm. Beautiful question. Um, I will throw in a quote from somebody to just... Uh, add to what you have just said about, you know, are people willing to actually know or can they know or do they deny it? There was uh, an author, I think uh, maybe an educator, social critic, Upton Sinclair, who has a quote that I really appreciate. And it goes like this. It's hard to get a person to understand something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. Okay. So, I'm going to refine that a little bit because you can you can switch out the word salary and put in the word lifestyle because lifestyle is a big thing, right? So it's hard to get a person to understand something when their current lifestyle depends on them not understanding it. 
So first, wrestle with that one. You know, you can know things if you're willing to know them. But our own personal biases and, you know, the education system, in a way, sometimes, um, say prohibit, but maybe don't want us to know. I don't know, because maybe we're marching towards a kind of a revolution, if you will. Um, so so there's, there's that piece. And uh, I'll just say that for myself, like where I am now and how I am when I'm working with people has changed significantly over the years. Because I came to my work, which was with nonviolent communication and, and having the enormous privilege and honor of being able to spend time with Marshall Rosenberg. When I was working with him, my understanding of life and the world, I would say, was much uh, smaller than it is now. So I just wanted to fix my relationships. That was it. And, you know, and have a good enough life. That was all I wanted to accomplish. And um, I never managed to, to do it, by the way. <laughs> I think you, you never get to the, the place, but you can learn a lot of things that will move you into a deeper way of living. So I would say that that definitely occurred. But what I noticed in my work with nonviolent communication was that is, is the world becoming better because of what I'm doing or because of what we're doing? Um, like are a few, you know, relationships that don't end in divorce, is this making the world a better place? And okay, some might argue that yes, it is in a, in a very small way, but I would say that the machinery of you know, the cultural machinery and the the progress, basically, you know, to, to do more, to have more, uh, more creature comforts. I mean, when I grew up, there was one bathroom in the house and I have four brothers. So it was a large family. Oh, most people could not survive with it. I know you could survive with it, but most people will not tolerate it. Different language. Are you kidding? One bathroom? Even if you have two kids? this is not enough. So you can see how the having more has only increased the standard and for wanting more. So I want to be uh, alert to that. And, and it was, it was that line of questioning that got me to actually think about relationships in, in a different way. I still do the work. I still return to, you know, the four steps of the nonviolent communication model, which to me is a very, uh, I would say, a robust framework to use to help people resolve conflict. It's very robust. The thing I would say, though, is it's not the only thing going on. It's not just you two people struggling. It's you two people living in a particular world that doesn't really care about whether you do well. As long as it's got its eye on the progress ball, it doesn't care. So this is where we come back to that quote. Um, 
where it's hard to get a person to understand something when their salary slash lifestyle depends on them not understanding it. It's, it's heartbreaking, honestly. So that's another thing I like to teach is heartbreak. It's like, maybe this isn't going to work out in the way that you thought it, it would. You can stay together or maybe not. Um, heartbreak anyway. And and do do you have a why that you would you know I think I think you said if you want to know you can you can know and I really I think that's a profound thing to say that that most people go oh yeah sure of course but but what that means the implications of that as a truth in 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 the living of life is that the answers are all there within you around you like life has in it embedded the answers you need to move forward in the way that's most true for you. And, and if we're not really curiously tracking that knowledge, then again, why not? Why wouldn't we want the answers? And I think you've already framed it in, in the, the disruption of a lifestyle that we're wildly attached to, and we're not being honest with ourselves about that attachment. Now, this, this I think is hard for someone, for someone who's struggling in relationship, for someone who grew up with mom and dad that didn't do a good job with them, who was carrying a lot of wounds and pain, the idea of like having a, a worse lifestyle than they currently have, I think can seem like a slap in the face. So, you know, how do you help people that are coming to honest work around resolving their relational pieces? Like, how does how do you make that make sense for them? Or how do you support them in finding the answers that allow them to properly contextualize um, what at least in the short term will look like even more struggle and pain than they've been experiencing and not less? Well, everything I've said to you so far, it's not usually what I say to people when I'm working with them, okay? Okay. <laughs> just let this be clear. You just really like okay? me, right? You want to... Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I, I, I think I, I want to use our time and do some real deep digging into this. Um, th so the way I would say it is, you know we're living in crazy times, eh? Like, that's what I would say to people. Of course you're feeling the way you do, because we're living in crazy times. Do you know what I mean when I say we're living in crazy times? It's like, there's a lot of disconnection that, that's going on in the world, and and you're part of it. So, so rather than, if it's a couple I'm working with, rather than uh, you taking it out on your partner, how about you just recognize that there's illness in the culture and that's what you're struggling with. And maybe the two of you work together and talk about that instead of beating each other up for thinking your life isn't going as it should. And by the way, where did you get this idea that it should go a certain way? So that's really what I'm looking at. You think your partner is supposed to do this thing for you because you understand that you have needs and you're so excited about now understanding that you have them and you want your partner. This is like you're presenting an ultimatum now, aren't you? Is that what you're doing? And so I mean, I, I would work more in that way. You know, but what I just said would take, you know, an hour and a half <laughs> to, to talk about. It's that people's expectations are so unrealistic. 
when well, you, it comes to relating. Yeah. You said something there that like this is what popped into my head when you started, which is our personal struggles are downstream from a society that is ill. So so our local illness, our, our local craziness is really just a downstream consequence of, you know, the upstream machinery of a culture that's not well. And as much as that's true, I also know that that a lot of people can get lost in, you know, like a kind of fixated activism against the world that actually under it all is an avoidance of their own personal pieces. So, you know, I, I think we could talk a little bit about that, but I would also like to make sure that we get to some pieces for those that are, you know, nodding their head and understanding what we're saying here, but also might still be um, without clear clear steps of like, okay, well, where do I start? Like, what do I start to do to to divert this downstream trajectory of dysfunction that, that I inherited that wasn't really my doing initially, but now I'm, you know, un, um, playing a part in, but, but w- don't want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so let's, so I want to get people to agree that we're all infected by something, the disease of separation. Okay. So recognizing that, then you can start to hopefully have some compassion for yourself and for other people, especially those that you're closest to. The other thing that hopefully I would want to stimulate at at the same time as this is recognition and a heartbreak and, and grief around, wow, things are really difficult. But also, you're here now and isn't that extraordinary and because this is not all about despair but you're gonna have to have some have a a drink of that I think before you can actually become groundedly grateful because the the gratitude is 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 a very important piece so there's a difference between saying okay tonight go home and i want you to write down in your journal three or five things that you're grateful for which is all part of the um you know i want more uh, or i got all this and now i finally got that and isn't that great and i'm happy and this is super and and then you run out of things to write and and i don't know there's a kind of just an ongoing churning around all of that but no you'll get in touch with your gratitude through the sorrow because you're still here. Because if it's if it's someone in your home that you're complaining about, they're still here in their humanness and in their woundedness. No one said it's all about being perfect. But now, I, from this place, I think it's more, um, I can do better work. They can do better work. If we start to look at, okay, let's talk about your most recent exchange. Okay, now that we understand all of the forces that are impacting your relationship, let's talk about what recently happened and how that could have gone differently, because that could have gone differently for sure. But I want you to come to it with a new lens, a new understanding about what the problem is. It's not all you, but there's some things you can do about this.
I really like to say, um, you know, joy and pain travel along the same the same channels in us, and and it it actually has to be that way because of how life works and because of how we work, because of how relationship works, it can't be another way. So there's something inherent about the relationship between joy and pain, and and there's the primary way I believe we disconnect from our joy is by trying to separate those two and try to maximize the joy and minimize the pain. And of course, because the role pain has, which is really a signal that something needs care and attention, as we try to minimize the pain, it gets louder. I think that's you know the, the primary place where we can look where that makes sense is chronic chronic pain. You know, all of the the main kind of mechanistic interventions of that over time create more pain, a need for more of the intervention because we're not getting the message. The, the, the real signal of the pain isn't getting to us. And so the intelligence of our body is like, hey, you're not listening. So, you know, I, I think that most people who pay attention for a, a, any period of time will start to notice that relationship of like, as I make peace with my pain, I actually inherently, intrinsically begin to feel the meaning of my life. I begin to feel a kind of joy just for being, just for being here in this moment and having a body and having a heartbeat and having a voice, that there's something deeply meaningful and and actually inherently joyful about that in spite of the pain, not not in the absence of the pain, in spite of the pain or or in concert with the pain, I would be, say is a more, more articulate way to say it. So, you know, for people that are maybe starting to tune into that, oh yeah, okay, I can lean into this pain or I can open in the midst of this pain and just be with it in its fullness. What does that enable for us in a relational context? Like for those people that are, maybe they, they're, they're in implementing a mindfulness practice or they're starting to use the nonviolent communication tools and, and there's a lot there, right? There's, there's challenges that maybe they're, they're practiced <laughs> Dysfunctional patterns help them not feel, but but they're also starting to go. Oh yeah, this is a pathway forward. Um, what what's next after we start to go? Oh, there there is a way for me to be more responsible in my life. What's what would you s- sort of invite people into or or support people with? Um, hmm. uh, you you said a lot there, and. Can you can you just summarize it in one like Yeah, well I think what I think I'm pointing to is is that there are some people I worked with at-risk kids for a number of years and and okay. one of the things that came through for me um was as a as a caregiver of of some kind with people that are struggling there are going to be people where you pour a little water on them and immediately they grow and then there's going to be other people that are, they're like the desert. You know, you just pour love and care and 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 support onto them, and and they just tell you to screw off. And and I'm not convinced that that those efforts for those people that are more challenging to work with are are meaningless. I don't think they're meaningless. But I think there's choices we need to make about like where do we put our energy and attention, knowing we can't fix it all. I'm not going to get to all the problems of the world for sure, and I may not even 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 given a really you know earnest effort i may not even get to all the problems in my own life so how do i help myself it's it's sort of like a sense making how do i sense make around the most meaningful things to do with the time and resources i do have yeah um 
first of all, I I would I would encourage anybody uh, to look at all the ways they are addicted to fixing and the idea of fixing at all. Like, is it really broken? Is someone who you use the word desert? Do they really need to be fixed? What? Like, how do we know? Because then it, it, what we do is we end up having this idea of, you know, cookie cutter, perfect people, and and everybody lived happily ever after. It's like a Disney story, and uh, which generates a lot of pain. Just the idea that something could be a certain way and it's not. So I think that has a lot to do with just the fact that we we have inherited a particular way of living. I you know, when I, I mentioned the book, The Continuum Concept, and one of the things that Leadloff talked about was how she recognized, wow, people are different here in the way they think. And she tells this wonderful story of a portage of a, a dugout canoe, which they're very heavy. So they're going through the rainforest. It's pouring rain. It's muddy. People are slipping all over the place. She's with a group of men. In, so they're all the, the Yoquani Indians but also two Italian guys who she went down there with and they're on a mission to find diamonds. So that's why they're with the Indian people because you know they're also mining, right? But she's more interested in the people. And at some point she is also participating in this, you know, walking through the the torrential rains and slipping and mud all over the place and she she leaves for a second to go take a picture of what's going on. And she notices something that all the Indians are laughing and howling and having a great time and they're slipping and, you know, somebody might end up pinned to a tree and it's dangerous and they're laughing. The Italians are swearing like crazy. This is shit, right? Oh, what are we doing here? And so she recognized, wow, like, we have very different heads, different ways of thinking about what's happening. And the people were belonging to the place, whereas she and the other two Italians were not being cooperative with the place. The place is already telling you what's necessary. So she also spoke about how the kids were were very cooperative uh and also very free. You never tell people what to do. And I mean, people do have a need for autonomy and need for respect for their autonomy that they know how to choose things. But in a village setting, people aren't left out. They're not alone, but nor are they told, you do this because I said so, because I'm your mother, yada, yada. So I, I personally, I mean, this is what I do. I like to read about you know, different ways of thinking and understanding life. Because that tells me that the way I am approaching things may not be the most healthy for me. So even when, you know, studying nonviolent communication, there are there are steps to follow. There there is a framework to it. But even as I do that, if I don't allow that and some other, to me, useful information to change my way of thinking, I'm still just on the hamster wheel. 
of trying to fix things, trying to get this to to finally work out, to finally be perfect. And, you know, we have we have our moments, right? Where, oh, this is so awesome. This is great. I love it. I feel good. You feel good. We all feel good. And, but it doesn't stick. But who said it's supposed to? And one of the things Leadloff talks about is that she wondered if in our culture, the the obsession that people have for, we'll say, adventure and speed or um, at the fall fair, though I, I attended a fall fair this past weekend and there's the Ferris wheel and the zipper and all of the crazy rides. She thought, is it possible that people, because they've been deprived of the in-arm phase, which as an infant, you would be tossed around, you'd be on your mother's back while you know, she's bending over, getting water from the river, that all of that movement is a stage of development. And if you don't have it, you're forever trying to get it. But you can't. You know, it, so you can do all the screaming, you know, watch the horror movies or feel at one with your partner if you have, you know, during a wonderful lovemaking session. Uh, she also pointed out that uh, many of the songs that we have in North America, you know, they have the word baby in it and they don't mean baby. They mean you, my adult partner, you're my baby. Um, because it was a way of recognizing how that particular type of union between the mother and the infant was not sustained or was not fully nurtured. And so we forever continued to seek it out. So I don't know if that's true, but it's a theory that makes a lot of sense to me. And so what, what do you do with this you know, impulse to fix. Well, you know, meditation can help, but it, it's, to me, it's just learning how, what does a reasonable life look like? So, so there's an element of uh, cognitive work that needs to be done, that has to be done, it has to do with the, the thinking. It's not enough, in my opinion, anyway, to simply go, well, okay, what's my body wanting right now? Tuning in and how am I feeling? You know, our feelings are based on our expectations in large part. If you give me something and I've been yearning for it and I get it, oh, I feel I feel so loved and this is great. And but it's there's a lot that's being missed out or that that's not considered in the equation of what do we need. Yeah. Well, I, I we talked a little bit earlier about just like sense making around what what the values of things are, and mm-hmm. I believe that that there there is a relevant hierarchy of values at play in any given moment, and I think the the more whole and integrated we are as a human being, the more that registers in our experience, and then the less integrated we are, the more distortion there is, and so then we actually misinterpret on the level of experience what feels good and what doesn't feel good doesn't reflect the real levels of value that are at play and, and you know your example of the the um the the native people in the in the jungle and the italians is such a poignant profound 
distinction of of like cultural inheritance. You know, the, the way I heard it as you spoke was for those for those indigenous people, the slipping and the falling and the challenge of moving and portaging in the rain is just part of the flow of their lives. It, for the Italians, it was an inconvenience that would that would would have been much uh, better avoided than engaged, and uh, so that 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 in sort of that predisposition towards things that are difficult and unexpected predisposes them to have a miserable time with it. And I think what you've been pointing to around not fixing and like how do I come to peace with the the genuine nature of how things are, the incredible key that provides us to unlock what's been locked up in us. Um, and, and I want to kind of throw in another dimension because in not trying to fix, the end point of that is not a, a complete apathy and disengagement with life. It's not to become a puddle on the floor. It's that that frees us to, to be with ourselves and with the circumstances of our life in a, in a far more salient and, and honest way. And then we and then we begin in that honesty to begin registering the real levels of value of things. And so that piece that you said that you talked about it as cognitive, I, I just think of it as a discernment process. First, I need to be with the nature of things as they are. If I don't start with that, I will miss the mark for sure. But then once I'm honest with the way things are, I need to start bringing a kind of listening to the table. It's like a, a deep, not listening with my ears only, like listening with my whole being of what's what's of real value here and and to genuinely not know the answer first and as we begin to resonate with the the happenings of the present moment like you said in the beginning knowing is there to be realized like genuine knowing of the difference in level in this moment this piece that feels hard i know this is more important than this other piece that feels really easy and good and i need to choose this if i'm going to honor what i know right now so you know, that example in the forest or in the jungle, I think easily and relevantly tracks to the difficulties of our relationships. And, you know, I'm curious for for you, when someone's in a kind of distress or difficulty in their relationship, and they are willing to come into a kind of honest relationship with the way things are, and they are beginning, they are willing to apply the things, whether through a therapist or a coach or their own kind of realization to apply a different way with the way things are going. Um, are there any things that you think are just impassable? Like, do we get stuck to a degree where it's just not possible to move through that? Um, put it this way. I've, I've never seen that happen, but I do think people get in their own way. I think people often don't recognize the way in which they are uh, stopping things, stopping the relationship from moving forward in a good way, but they'll blame it on the other person. Um, you know, we haven't spoken about language, and this is where, you know, I do think about, you know, I do want to mention cognition. There, There is thinking that needs to occur because and the NVC process, you know, we we have you know those four simple steps. If you're in a conflict situation, the first thing you do is you make a clear observation about what the other person is saying or doing. 
assuming it's another person. Um, you say how you feel, you state what your needs are, and you make a clear doable request. And it all seems very easy to do, but it turns out is very difficult. And the reason is, is because people are linguistically trained to respond in certain ways when things aren't going the way they want. And so an example of that would be in how people speak about their feelings. And I can tell you that this I see happen a lot between couples in particular. When I'm working with one person alone, which I also do, it's harder for me to know exactly what's going on. And it's amazing how uh, how more fulsome the story becomes when the other person comes in. Because then you see the dynamic that just, whoa, okay, here's, here's what's going on. So people say things like, uh, I feel dismissed. I feel put down. I feel like uh, whatever I say isn't important. I feel like I don't matter to you. Now, I use the word feeling deliberately. Um, also, it's because how, that's how I hear people speak. But in, in saying what I just said, I didn't once speak about my feelings. So to me, this is like a big deal. You, if you want to learn how to communicate clearly, only use the fe word feel to describe feeling instead of what you're doing, which is your interpretation of what the other person is doing. Oh, but they are dismissing me. Yeah, well, keep on telling yourself that because that's a stuck point right there. You've got to get past that, but you're putting it up. Can you think of another way to speak about what's happening? Are you willing to connect to your own vulnerability right now? Because that's a hard thing too. We're speaking about connection you know, mainly I've been speaking about like, how do you, how do we try to uh, connect or increase our capacity, our bandwidth for connection, but you're going to also have to look at, are you willing to connect to your own vulnerability, your own woundedness? You know, can you say something like, instead of saying, I feel dismissed, I feel scared right now. I'm telling myself a story. I don't know if it's true that maybe you're not thinking about me and I have a need to know that I matter. And it's really scary for me to say that to you right now. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to reflect it back to me. I just want to make sure I'm speaking clearly. I don't want you to hear blame or criticism in what I'm saying because that's way different than saying, I feel dismissed. You say that, it's, it's adding fuel to the fire. You're definitely not going to connect. Them's are fighting words, for sure. Yeah, and you're telling the other what they're doing and what their reality is. And, and uh, it could work. You know what I mean? Like there's moments where you're really saying what you're seeing and feeling and that they're, they see that you're right and they're willing to let that in. And like, it's possible, right? It's possible that that could be said in that way and it could get across. But 99 point something percent of the time, that's not how it goes. So yeah, it's just that piece well, you're sharing. Yeah, go ahead. It it's possible that it could get across. There, there's no doubt that you know in the communication the other person might hear. But what you're doing is you're putting the responsibility on the other person to translate what you've said. And there are people who could do that. You know, people who have are practitioners of NBC. It doesn't matter if the other person says, "I feel dismissed." They will do the translation. 
they will say, are you feeling frustrated or are you feeling scared because you have a need to know that you matter right now? Okay, but notice they didn't say that. So I do encourage people to increase their own ability to articulate their aliveness instead of their judgments. Yeah, and, so, and you're, yeah. you're speaking to, ex well, what I hear also in what you're saying is that it is the vulnerability of like being in touch with our own vulnerability and letting the other see us and feel us in that, that is a, a vehicle and a kind of channel through which connection occurs. And that mm -hmm. even though you can get a message across and the other person can translate and that can move the conversation forward in some way, what, what was missed is genuine vulnerability and the opportunity for the two of you to, to feel each other in the midst of that vulnerability, which is, you know, to me is the heart blood of real connection. <laughs> yeah. Lovely. So you spoke a bunch about uh, Marshall Rosenberg, who I think a lot of people are familiar with. If you're not, go read him. There's actually lots of videos still of him. He's just <laughs> a precious gem of a human uh, who did some incredible work in the world. Um, one of your other mentors that you spoke about, I read about on your website, was uh, Stephen Jenkinson, mm -hmm. um, who is also a very special, unique individual. Could you say a little bit about what he's brought to you, your life and your work? And and for sure, for those that are not familiar with Stephen, um, worth checking out his writing and, and what he's doing in the world as well. Mm -hmm. I met Stephen in uh, 2010. And when I met him, I immediately signed up to um, attend the school in Ontario, which uh, which is great for me because I actually was born and raised in Ottawa, and I have family there, and my son lives there, my grandkids are there, so any opportunity to go there, I, I would take. But how he has instructed me, um, put it this way, the first hour of our conversation that all came from my exposure to Stephen because there was nothing really in the NVC model that took me to the depths of what I was yearning for, which was, well, I'd been doing this for 10 years now. Now it's been over 20. But at the time when I met Stephen, I'd been doing NVC for 10 years. And I was like, this doesn't really stick. It, it, it helps people. It's not like it doesn't, or it doesn't change people's lives. People claim it changes their lives, but it doesn't change the culture. I'm interested in that piece. You know, I mean, one of the things that Marshall Rosenberg would say was, please use this for social change. So I'm like, okay, let's go. <laughs> but how do I do this? And I find that the work I've done with Stephen has made it possible for me to approach nonviolent communication in a much deeper way. So, um, I mean, I've, I've had, well, for, first of all, I'll say something about death and dying because that was actually what brought me to Stephen was somebody, uh, a couple of people had died in, in my life in 2010. And I saw that he was giving a workshop on heartbreak, learning heartbreak. And I thought, yay, that sounds great. <laughs> um, and I had such a, an appreciation for his way of speaking, storytelling, his way of being so beautifully candid. And 
And I can tell you, I'll, I'll tell you this experience at the very first workshop that I had. So we're all in this room. And if you've ever spent any time with Stephen, you'll know, you'd like right away, you know, all oh, this is going to be different. It's not going to be like, oh, we're going to sit in a circle and we're going to go around and we're going to introduce ourselves and say why we're here, which is a practice I no longer do. I've stopped doing in my workshops, but that's what I used to do. And so what Stephen said was, so I've received word from, you know, the the programmers here at Hollyhock that y'all like to do this introduction thing, but um, it's not really my way. So I got to do something a little different here. Um, you probably don't know each other. Maybe some of you do, but what I'd like you to do is you introduce the person seated next to you. You introduce them and I want you to make it clear by the time you're done, it doesn't have to be long, but by the time you're done, that the rest of us are really blessed to have that person in our presence. Go. I was like, oh my gosh. Because initially, uh, I, actually, initially, I was thinking, oh, I could, I, you know, I've been working in communication and NBC for, for so long, this will be this should be easy. But the more he started to talk about what was to happen, and he said, and don't make it about them or don't make it about them, about what you what you like about them personally and leave out the things you don't like. Don't do that. Okay, when, he, when that starts to happen, I think there were about 18 people in the room in... Two hours, we probably got three people done <laughs> because of the amount of times he interrupted the process because we didn't get it and I didn't get it. I happened to be the second person. So I was introduced by someone and then it was my job to introduce the person next to me who, interestingly or ironically, you know, the way things work out, I didn't know that person at all. But there was something about that person that I had witnessed the night before, and I just didn't like them. And that was all I had to go on. <laughs> so, can can you say what the difference was between people's impression of what Stephen was asking and and like oh, what he yeah. what he was asking because of, you know he demonstrated yeah, yeah. that over the two hours, right? Like, what was the difference? Yeah, the difference was you know, and I'm I'm not going to do a good job on something that took place over an entire morning, and you know we have our limited amount of time here, but that we always made it about us, that it worked for us personally, what we like about some someone, and he was trying to get us to think in terms of how is a life, the life that feeds you. The non-human life, the other than human life that feeds you better as a result of the presence of this person. And you're wondering, well, is it better? Is that even true? I mean, a lot of questions start to come up, right? But it was to get ourselves out of the center and put life in the center. And that really has, uh, that has been so important for me and in my work. Um, because when it comes to relationships, it's not about you personally. It's this relationship, if it's going to thrive, it's like a, a plant in your garden. And you have to feed that, the nutrients that it needs, not the ones you decided. 
But the ones that the relationship needs, that's what you got to go to. And you won't be left out in the process. You might have to mm, tweak some of your expectations. Uh, and you probably will have to, actually, for sure. But you won't be left out. It's not me first. It's life first. And so so that was the exercise. And during that time, I mean, it wasn't simply Stephen correcting. It was him speaking about our way of seeing. Uh, you might call it a, a white way of seeing the world or, a, you know, a settler colonizing way of seeing the world. Um, it was so profound. And that was the first, that, that was at Hollyhock. And, uh, you know, after that workshop, I, d I didn't even know that Stephen had a school. But then when I found out he had a school, I was like, um, I'm going to the school because it rattled me. It really rattled me. And I'm always up for that. Yeah. And I, I can just imagine or I'll offer this to anyone listening is, you know, that little introduction practice is something that you can do. Like you can do that with your partner. You can do that with someone you're in a difficulty with. And maybe even most importantly, you can do that with yourself. Like, can you bring a lens or a perspective of how does my presence in this moment enrich or, or how is it a service to life itself? And um, I think there's so much for us to learn in the, in the genuine curious asking of that question or the exploration of that question. I, I will add to it that I, I don't I can't say that I have mastery over it, but if I had a shared understanding of the the culture and I knew something of where the person came from, that's where I would start. It wouldn't be about them. It would be about, you know, I don't know this person sitting next to me, but I do know something about their ancestry. And I do know something about the stone that I see that's in the pendant that she's wearing. And that comes from a particular place in the world. And the fact that she has decided to put that on, that tells me that, you know, she may have some discernment about these matters. And, you know, and I go on about the ancestry. So that's a, an amazing thing, you know, that this person is now standing in for all of that that's happened before. And that's who's here beside me now. I haven't said anything about them. That it, so what it does is the room gets larger as a result of doing that. You know, when I'm doing uh, residential trainings, the way I ask people to introduce themselves is because that, that's too complicated <laughs> what I was asked to do. I don't do that, but I do something different. I ask them to say where they came from, that where's the land, and what is the name, their mother's name, and their grandmother's name, and where does that grandmother come from? Because I'm trying to bring a verti vertical line into the room instead of the all about me. It, so I, I still don't know anything about the person. And because the, uh, the truth is too, hey, when people say why they've come to something, that may be why they came. That may be they believe why they came. But at the end of it, they usually say something very different. I thought I came for this, but it turns out what I really came for was this. So, you know, it's 
so I just kind of push that aside and let's let's get to where are you from? Let's establish that you come from a place and and see where we go with that. I, one thing I've noticed about uh, First Nations people whenever I work with them, say privately, and it's the first meeting, they start by their lineage, always. I am so-and-so. I am the daughter or the son of this person from this clan, from this grandmother, from this grandfather. And, you know, it makes me think it's so relational to speak that way. And I think about when I was uh, uh, younger or when, let me look at, I'm going to go back a little bit, the ways in which we cut out the relationship part. Here, here's some way that sounds like it's modern and the proper way to say things, but I'm not just, I'm not just somebody's wife or someone's mother. Well, for heaven's sakes, have some pride in being the wife and the mother. Like right away when we say that, we're actually, we don't mean to do it. It's not intentional, but it has the consequence of saying, oh, I see, it's just you there by your lonesome self. I want to know who you are in relationship to a place and the peoples who you come from. That will make, there's, that, that gives you more. It doesn't take away, but we, just because we're so wrapped up in individuality, it, it becomes easy to think, well, it's an insult now if I'm just a wife or I'm just a mother. Just? So... Yeah, and I hear you talking about this this inclusion of the vertical, and and I'm just interpreting, at least in part, the vertical is all of the impersonal of what's occurring in this moment, like all of what's here that's not personal. And actually, most of what's here is not personal, but but human beings, you know, you know, colonizers, Western Western minded people, tend to operate where the personal takes up most, if not all, of the space of the present moment. And wow, what what a disservice to being in relationship with with what life is when the personal is so pervasive. Um, and of course, like we have to get out of the way of being personally the center of the universe for more of that vertical to come in and, and be known and 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 to start to register in our experience. Precisely, yeah. I I, I think you, you said that very well. Yeah, there's so much that's impersonal, but also needing to be seen, to, to be acknowledged. Um, and that enriches our lives. It doesn't take away. It enriches our lives. You know, yeah, the, the, the me, 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 the self, self, self is a very lonely uh, project. Yeah, and you mentioned, and I, th- I think you would you would agree, you can tell me if you agree, you know, including more of that vertical, which I think just goes and goes and goes. I think over time, as we develop, we just deepen. We just become more aware of how much vertical is really operating. But none of that is at the exclusion of the personal. It just places the personal in its rightful context. That's that's right. Yeah. And that, that's balanced and that's belonging. Now you know it's nice to belong to yourself. Oh, that's, that's very lonely. But no, there's this incredible... Uh, feast table, if you will. I, I did a, a calculation once. I, I don't remember. It, it involves some math, but 
when we speak of seven generations, if you count, you, you know, you, you, you count your parents and then their parents and you go back seven generations, you've got to something like 156 people at your table. And so that's only seven. And all of those people had something to do with the fact that you're here now. You can't be lonely. You can only be lonely if you forget that or you refuse to acknowledge that or feed that or thank that. So, yeah. And that all for me, it, it's just a reminder of, of how much can be included, how much we can be in relationship with as we expand our perspective. And, and of course, there, there are casualties to expanded perspective. And, and um, it's when we can't track or register the meaning of that exchange. Like, oh, I'm going to give over some of this personal stuff that I've been holding tightly to and, and really that's been causing so much of my suffering. I'm going to pass that over and, and, and tr walk the, the liminal journey from a very personally centered life to one that's centered around life itself and, and, and what's possible there and, and what's meaningful about life itself. Um, yeah, so I, I just really love that that flavor. It's so Stephen uh, in its in its uh, <laughs> in its perspective. Is there anything else for you that you'd like to kind of share to to tie together what we talked about today, or anything else you'd want to share with someone that might be listening that can help them along their journey? You know, nothing comes to mind right now. I've just I I really appreciate just the richness of this conversation and talking about all of these things. I don't I don't think I've ever had a conversation that has covered so much territory, um, and I'm just re really appreciative of that. I would hope that people would at least be thinking about some of these things and knowing that the you know where they come from. It really matters. The land they're standing on really matters. And their ability to connect with all of those other aspects is really going to be super helpful for them in the relationships. And I would add one thing. Most people are probably familiar with Esther Perel's work. And Esther Perel speaks about how relationships used to be in the past, you know, you, and that so much now is put on the other person. Uh, because they're expected to be your lover, your cab driver, your your therapist, your you know a confidant, all of these things that that person is to be, which is replacing the village that was there before. So start to spread the love around as well as the burdens. I think <laughs> you, you got to, you know, can you help me out with this? Is and that is the community, um, but the community is much bigger than humans. It's it's much much bigger, and I think that simply recognizing that and seeking out ways to establish those connections. It just means go out in the morning and lie on the earth for five, 10 minutes, even in the rain, just lie there. And that's, that's already a deep blessing. Yeah. Yeah. So, awesome. Yeah. I also deeply enjoyed the conversation. I knew I would um, for those that enjoyed you and want to connect with you more on your work, uh, where can they find you? They can go to my website, rochellelam.com. Sweet. I also and have then, a podcast, yeah, that I, I put out every every week. It's a 10-minute one, but that's also can be found on the, the website, so rochellelam.com.
Thank you, Rochelle, for your time. Uh, I, I I would like to do this again at some point, so I will be in touch. Uh, you can decide whether that's something that resonates. And um, I'll make sure that that link to Rochelle's website is in the description for the podcast. Um, for those that joined, thank you for being here. We look forward to sharing more. And until next time, love well. Thank you so much for being here. You've been listening to the Better Relationship Podcast brought to you by RelationFlix. Please subscribe to the podcast and you can go and check us out at relationflix.com. We look forward to sharing so much more with you. And until next time, my friends, love well.